I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Professor Nancy Sherman. Dr. Nancy Sherman is the author of the recently published book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. She also wrote After War, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers, The Untold War, Inside the Hearts, Minds, and Souls of Our Soldiers, and Stoic Warriors, The Ancient Philosophy Behind the Military Mind. She has spent the last few decades writing about military ethics, moral philosophy, ancient ethics, emotions, moral psychology, and psychoanalysis. And so in this episode, we discuss how we can look to the past to build grit and resilience today. And she explains why we need to develop empathy, focus on relationships, and why trying to make ourselves bulletproof is not the answer to living the good life. This episode is packed full of valuable wisdom, some of it thousands of years old. And I think if you struggled with PTSD, communicating your emotions to others, or even with the isolation that COVID-19 produced, you will find something valuable in this episode. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Nancy Sherman. Hi there. Hey, Professor. It's so nice to be on with you, Joe. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you today, Professor Sherman. For our listeners who aren't familiar with you, especially our military listeners, you have a long, multi-decade career involvement with the military, correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. I cut my teeth with the military, you might say, but not in uniform, though I was often given a one star in order to be able to put me in officer lodgings. (laughs) What brought you into the military sphere in the first place? So in the mid-90s, the Naval Academy had this massive cheating scandal in one of their tougher courses, electrical engineering, double E. And it involved a compromise. Some students had actually gotten in a professor's office and got hold of the exam. That led to a major public investigation, but also internal investigation. 
and 133 midshipmen were under investigation and some ended up being separated from the academy. And they needed to think about ethics. And so they brought me in. I'd always taught ethics at Yale first and then Georgetown. They said, can you teach a a course for us? So I designed a course, a kind of intro ethics course. It's now still on the books, NE203. And we ended up not only teaching those midshipmen who had been implicated in the cheating compromise, but also it became a standard course for the whole youngster year, second year students. And then we also set up the Stockdale Center. So I helped design the Center for Ethics and Leadership that was named after Admiral Jim Stockdale. So that involvement, which essentially I took a leave of absence from Georgetown for three years and was the inaugural distinguished chair in ethics at the Naval Academy. And um, I ended up writing about stoicism because at some point in the course, we talked about stoicism and the ship had arrived. This was my midshipman and my officer's philosophy. And so I wanted to explore how that appealed to them and why it appealed to them. And you might say the blessings and curses of being a Stoic. It wasn't just about suck it up and truck on or embrace the suck, which is how they would put it. It was a a richer philosophy. So that gives you a little bit of the beginning of the story. Right. But I think there's there's also more there too, right? So like after 9-11 happened, you know, we see an uptick in deployments, an uptick in people serving in theaters such as Iraq and Afghanistan. And we also see an increase in suicides. And you played a role in that as well, correct? Yes. Yeah, so at some point, when I'm back at Georgetown post 9-11, I'm getting a lot of students who had deployed. One I'm very fond of, T.M. Gibbons Neff or Thomas Gibbons Neff. He's the New York Times Pentagon correspondent. He's in uh, Kabul now and been covering are leaving Afghanistan, but he was a sniper in the Helmand, a Marine. And others like him would be in my course. And I realized they had very profound conflicts that they couldn't figure out. They weren't necessarily going into therapy, but they wanted to be in a just war course that I taught. And so when we came to issues of what I call moral injury and is studied well by the VA and also in the DOD, This just resonated in essentially a sense that, like PTSD, but it's not just a a fear response to life threat, it's a response to moral conflict, heavy moral conflict, collateral incidents that you think you shouldn't have incurred where there were children, even if there were permissive rules of engagement that you were following to the letter. You still think you should have transferred the risk onto yourself or onto other troops rather than onto the civilians. You know, checkpoint incidents, for example, always came up for conversation or survival guilt. You're surviving and another doesn't. Or dealing with shady warlords where you do everything possible, but they still won't give you death certificates when you're trying to bury bodies. And you're trying to be the liaison between your command and a warlord and dealing with civilians. So All of this idea of of transgressing or having been transgressed or watching it as a close-up observer, where you feel guilt, shame, resentment, betrayal, breaches of trust, were things I was seeing amongst the students I was teaching. You know, often it would come up in quiet office hours. And so I started writing about it, and I wrote a series of books 
Untold War and After War that followed a book called Stoic Warriors. It came out of my time at the Naval Academy. And it came to the attention of the executive leadership of the various branches, including General Corelli's office, who I guess he was second in charge of the army at the time. And they were running intensive suicide review boards. All of the command leaders would be in a round table at the Pentagon, but also folks coming up on screens from far places, Korea and Iraq and Afghanistan. And they would debrief weekly or monthly, it might have been, on the suicides on their watch. And it was wrenching. That is the best way to say it. It was absolutely wrenching. You know, Corelli would pound to the table and say, what are the lessons going forward? How can we improve this? And some of it was back home problems, returning to spouses who really weren't your spouse anymore because your family was the family of battle buddies, couldn't pay your mortgage, high on meds, a lot of self-medication, arms that should have been taken away from service members that were, in this case, soldiers that weren't taken away. And so it was really just distressing. And so that led me to continue involvement. And then I started working with the VA, but also Walter Reed. I live near Bethesda. And so I was going down there and looking at what their therapy programs were. So I've been deeply involved in moral injury and thinking about the tension between being stoic and suffering the psychological and moral wounds of war. And that's kind of informed my career for a long time. You just mentioned being stoic. And in a previous episode, we interviewed Donald Robertson, who's written one of my favorite books, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And we talked with him about stoicism. And, and he actually recommended your most recent book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience, which is how I came across you and, and read it, thought it was a great book. But for our listeners who are just discovering this podcast and didn't listen to that episode, could you talk a little bit about what stoicism is? Sure. So Stoicism is an ancient philosophy from about the third century before the common era to the second century afterwards. So it follows Plato and Aristotle and then continues. And the major players, if you like, are folks who taught at the Stoa, which means porch, the painted Stoa. And they wanted in some ways to think about how you minimize the effects of the slings and arrows of fortune. And they were not trying to make themselves bulletproof. I think that's a really wrong read on it, nor to make themselves anti-fragile, another way it sometimes comes up, or invulnerable, because you never be that. But somehow to strengthen your own resilience so that you can face the challenges, including worst case scenarios. And you can't always prepare, but there's, they give you lots of techniques for that. So that said, the old founders were not household names, but Zeno of Sidium and Chrysippus and um, a lesser known one, Cleantes, who came between them. Those are the three founding patriarchs, you might say. Um, but then ones that are more popular these days, Epictetus, his student, uh, he was enslaved from sort of Asia Minor and then comes to Rome, but his student was an emperor. So an enslaved person teaches an emperor, you might say, or an emperor finds his writings. And that's Marcus Aurelius, whom you mentioned. And my favorite, one of my favorites is Seneca, who was the speechwriter, spin doctor, moral tutor, somewhat failing in that role <laughs> for Nero. 
So they were very, they became, though they weren't necessarily early, public philosophers, street philosophers. And they've always been on the horizon and in the air because they were easy to read. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, our founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, picked them up. You know, they were bedside reading, easy to read. Seneca's easy to pick up. Epictetus is easy to pick up. And they influenced people. And Jim Stockdale, Admiral James Stockdale, whom I interviewed several times, actually was given this thin little book by Epictetus called um, The Enchiridion or At Hand, The Handbook. And he, he was a master's student at Stanford. And when I interviewed him, he said to me, this is in his later years, he said, what would a martini drinking, golf playing, naval aviator need with a book like that? That said, when he was on the USS Ticonderoga during the Vietnam War, he memorized it in those long nights in his wardroom. And he was shot down, as many of your listeners probably know, in 1965. And as he parachuted down, he said, this is James B. Bon Stockdale leaving the world of technology, entering the world of Epictetus, maybe five years down there. It ended up seven and a half years in what's called the Hanoi Hilton, the North Vietnam prisoner of war camp. John McCain was a friend and neighbor, and Stockdale was the commander, and he was the head of the chain of command. He was a senior guy. His philosophy was, how can I empower myself in these conditions of deprivation? It wasn't everyone's philosophy. He didn't convert. That was never his job. He said, I have my ducks lined up one way. They have theirs. But he, he led by trying to empower his command, you know, his command and his subordinates, despite the fact that they were extremely deprived. I mean, he spent two and a half years in solitary many of those years in leg irons. So it was quite remarkable. So it became a really practical philosophy in the military. When I taught at the Naval Academy, everyone knew Stockdale's story, you know, including Vietnam era Marines and Naval officers who had served around that time. This was in the early, I guess I got there in the mid nineties. And so my colleagues had served in Vietnam and it resonated. And I, you know, I helped set up the Stockdale Center at the Naval Academy honoring his memory. So that's sort of the connection of Stoicism and the military, but it runs deep. But one of the things I really emphasize is that Stoicism isn't just about tough it out, grit, march on no matter what. The Stoics recognized anguish and pain, moral anguish and pain, including physical anguish and pain. And you can't always put a good spin on it. You know, you can't just say the world is out there as some repeat stoicism and I make a judgment or it's my estimate of what the world is like out there. I think that gets it wrong. Seneca always says, I'm in the sick room with you. I'm in the same ward, medical ward as you are. I can't be a doctor unless I know what it feels like to be a patient. And I suffer too. And why they're so appealing, these philosophers are so appealing, is case they struggle hard with the fact that we often are dealt crappy hands, or it's not just crappy hands, or the world is unjust. I mean, they don't like to talk about it in those terms, but they are cosmopolitans. They weren't the first to use the phrase that comes before them. 
Diogenes the cynic said, I am a citizen of the universe. I come from everywhere and nowhere. But they expanded the borders out of the little Greek city-state or the polis to the globe, to the world. We're, we're world citizens. And they were trying to connect us, not to create inner citadels, islands unto ourselves. So my work really has been throughout, whether it was at the Naval Academy or thinking about suicide prevention, or I was at Guantanamo as well. I was part of a group that visited Guantanamo in the very early days, looking at medical conditions for detainees. I've always been about the emotions of attachment and connection. Service members can't fight unless they connect with each other. That's what a cadre is. But when you come home from war at a place like Fort Bragg, where you also have to connect with others in healthy ways, and I think stoicism can help. That's a long answer to a short question. No, that was, that was, a, that was a great answer. And, and you brought up Jim Stockdale. And as you mentioned, he spent seven and a half, almost eight years in the Hanoi Hilton. I think four of those were in solitary confinement and he made it back through the other side. And so for those who you know, maybe are interested or want to learn more, there's a great book called Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot by Stockdale. And it's a collection of his essays, speeches, and different things that he wrote over the years. But there's one quote I just like to share because you brought him up, Professor, that I, I liked. He said, um, the Stoics say that character is fate, but he says, what I'm saying is, is that in my life, education has been fate. I became what I learned, or maybe I should say, I became the distillation of what fascinated me most as I learned it. And so, you know, he learned the teachings of Epictetus and was able to apply those to, you know, basically make it through the other side of his confinement during the Vietnam War. And so, you know, one of the things that he wrestled with, and, and you also alluded to it in, in that answer you just gave, was emotions. And so you talk about it in your book, Stoic Wisdom, but, but how did the Stoics view emotions? I think the Stoics are the most prescient, forward-thinking ancient philosophers on the emotions. And they had this view that emotions at all levels are cognitive. So they're sort of about uh, appraisals, estimates of the world. That bear looks frightening. That enemy is going to kill me. That child is innocent, something like that. And then you have a certain kind of reaction to that judgment. So emotions are through and through cognitive, but they think that some of the reactions are also cognitive. That's just their way of understanding the psyche. And then you also have a certain kind of way of behaving. So they're early cognitive behavioral theorists, you might say. And amongst the emotions, there are three levels. It's layered. Some of the very basic ones are, are almost autonomic arousals. You get the sweats. Your heart starts palpitating. You have an erection. You blush. You turn green. They're fast. Sometimes the contemporary neurobiologists call them low road emotions. There's not a lot of cognitive mediation. You perceive something, but your body takes over. The next level is ordinary emotions. And, you know, they're fear, desire, pleasure, and distress. They like to chop the world into big categories and all the sub kinds of emotions under there. And they think those often, their phrases, or Seneca puts it, outleap reason. They're, all, they're again cognitive. The bear is out there. He's scary. 
And then that's one judgment. Another one is I should run a second one. But sometimes both your response and your behavioral reaction outleap what's rational to do. Maybe you should freeze. You know, in combat, maybe not running is the thing to do, but knowing exactly how to use your weapon, et cetera. And a third level of emotions are highly rational ones where you figured out how to moderate them and modulate them so they don't outleap reason. So they're good emotions. And so it's really rich. That's a whole layered effect of emotions, like a trifecta. And they think that the task of being a good person with strong character, integrity, virtue is to try to get your emotions in order so that you're not a hothead. Seneca has a fabulous book on anger, essentially about how anger on your face, it's swollen degradation. You know, if you look at your face when you're angry, you would run away from yourself. And he says, you can press the pause button. You can insert space between that impression of what's out there and how you respond. Sometimes you want to respond automatically. But if your automatic responses aren't particularly informed, reflected, you know, you harbor a lot of prejudice, for example. So how you see the world or preconceptions, how you see the world is not necessarily how you should see the world. Seneca is saying, press the pause button. Relook at the impressions that you're giving assent to. That's their language. But the idea is it's not just for your self improvement that you are on some journey and want to control your rage, or you're on some journey and you want to control your desire because you know, you're know uh, verging on being an alcoholic or you're self medicating with too much drugs and booze, or you're driving too fast you know, on a base, having just come home from deployments, or you're angry at your kids or wife all the time. It's not just about me, but it's also about the way you interact in the world. I gave a sense of that to your family. But also, I mean, on the lines, are you looking in your line of work and, you know, in, in military, are you looking at those civilians in the right way? Are you seeing them as scum? Or are you seeing them as people who have lives they're trying to lead? What about the whole conversation that we've been having about racial reckoning for this year, about misogyny, about Asian Americans, and whether we're seeing in the right way? The Stoics have lessons here. If you're thinking too fast, especially with regard to your emotions, how you think more slowly. I mean, that's a famous phrase from the psychologist Daniel Kahneman, um, thinking fast and thinking slowly. But Seneca was onto that. Press the pause button and reflect on the lenses through which you make your estimates of the world. I think they're brilliant in this regard, and I think they offer us lessons for everyone whether it's to do with emotional regulation, emotional management, or how we come together in the world so that we're not enraged at each other all the time and tearing ourselves apart through fear and rage. Right. And one of the things that I really appreciated, Dr. Sherman, with your book, especially the recent one, Stoic Wisdom, is it? I feel like a lot of authors, when they write about Stoicism, they're kind of like these feel-good, self-help leadership books and I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of push back against that. I do. 
I'm glad you picked that up. (laughs) But it's not about us. It's about us in the community. That's an important aspect of stoicism. So you address a lot of the issues that have kind of played out over the last two years. You know, what, like you said, misogyny, equal rights, you know, some things that, you know, somebody like myself may turn a blind eye to, but that's one of the lenses in which you write about stoicism in this book. Yeah. So I do that. Well, I was also writing in the pandemic. You know, we were all isolated. I happened to have a sabbatical from teaching and couldn't go anywhere, couldn't get on a plane, couldn't see my children. And so my husband and I were, you know, like all of us at home. But I had time. And I was thinking a lot about frontline workers. I was thinking a lot about the year. It was a hard year. I teach, not that year, but I'm in a classroom. I live on a campus when I teach where 272 enslaved persons were sold by the Jesuits in 1838 to finance the campus on which I teach. We are profoundly connected to our history as the leading Jesuit institution. Not that we teach all Catholics. It's a very broad community. But that history has ripped open our community. I mean it. You know, my students are tearful when they think that the beloved community they are on, some of them African-American, some of them African, some of them Ethiopian, Eastern Africa is a big community in our campus. They don't know what to make of it. So I I live this stuff. It's not remote. And certainly in the forces, integration and racial justice, but also trying to finally root out sexual misconduct in the military. Horrible views of women where they thought they shouldn't be in command, they shouldn't be an aviator, they shouldn't be this. I was thinking a lot of that and thinking about the Stoics. And what kept resonating in my head, not only the ideas reflect on the preconceptions you have that you're not even sure that you have, was an image that Marcus Aurelius gives you in the meditations. And that is, he's got to be thinking of the battlefield. He's in the Germanic campaigns on the Danube. It's at night. He's writing to himself. It's only meant for his eyes. It wasn't meant to be produced as the meditations. That's a later publishing effect. And he says, picture the severed limbs on a battlefield. We can add separated from the trunk of the body. That's what a human being makes of herself when she cuts herself off from others. And so throughout the meditations, it's not just about tough it up, suck it up. It's about connect with others. He says over and over again, we can't do anything unless we're in cooperative endeavors. And he says, we are citizens of the world. And similarly, a lesser known guy, Hierocles, second century um, commoner, I think, he says, picture yourself as a point in a series of concentric circles. That's you, the self. Now bring the outermost circle So not kith and kin, and not your race, and not your tribe. Those are the terms he uses. But the farthest reach of humanity, his language, right back to yourself. And compress the circles and bring the outermost person back to me. Do it with respect. So I take that very literally, that we are engaged in trying to figure out through our imagination and exercises of putting ourselves in other people's shoes and they putting themselves in our shoes, 
how to shrink the space. And again, a stoic phrase, so that we can bring the other into our home. That's their phrase. Make them akin. It's the word for economy, but it's oikia. And that's our word for economics, which was household economy, essentially. It's an active imagining of another, bring it home. That's what I think of in terms of reckonings. We have moral commitments. The Enlightenment, so that's the 18th century, but before the Renaissance, 1500s, they're all thinking about how do we establish a moral, ethical commonwealth in this world, on this world? Will it involve God? Maybe. Will we be the moral law rather than the divine law being the moral law? That's Immanuel Kant. Yes, we are our own moral legislator because we have reason. That's Stoic. He just, he just ripped a page out of Stoicism. Shared reason is how we connect with humanity. So I think they're brilliant on that score. It's totally underappreciated in the self-help, me-help, pick up a book at the airport about how to go on your self-journey. And that's the problem. Maybe it's a marketing problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're the one saying the names first, so I don't butcher them. But that's exactly what I was thinking about in your book, because you have a section on Stoic empathy, where you talk about Heracles. And the quote you have from him is that we keep zealously transferring those from the enclosing circles into the enclosed ones. And it's incumbent on us to respect people from the third circle as if they were from the second. And so I just, I really appreciated this idea, I guess, like kind of a mental framework for empathy and why it's so important. Another emotion, another thing that you talk about in both books, Stoic Warriors and Stoic Wisdom, is fear. And so one of the people that you cover is Captain Jolly, who was, I believe he was a, a medical professional in the British Army during the Falklands War. And he came up with this, I feel like it's like an ingenious way to help uh, soldiers work through fear. Could you talk about that aspect of the book? Well, sure. So Captain Rick Jolly, um, I think he was actually Navy, the Royal Navy. And I, that, was, I, that was my service. Uh, that's your service <laughs> bias. There. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. He's no longer with us. But he took these troops down to the Falklands or Malvinas Islands. And he knew that they were going to be, I mean, the British had not really fought for a while. They had been in Northern Ireland and he actually cut his teeth in Northern Ireland with troops. So I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. Jolly sort of knew Churchill's history and he knew Churchill's personal doctor was Lord Moran, whose book I read at one point. And Lord Moran pictured courage as a bank account. And courage like money, you know, either you can take it out one by one by one in your pennies, or you can just take it out in one fell swoop, which is essentially what happens when people come under a huge attack. And a paratrooper, you know, had this fear. He just couldn't face it anymore. And so I think what Jolly said in twisting Moran's story a little bit to make it modern, he said, you've got dollars. I've got sterling. You're a man who does something most of us would point blank refuse to do. This was a, a paratrooper jumping out of an airplane at night with oxygen. I'm happy here to work with an unexploded bomb. I don't think you're a psychic. I don't think you have battle shock or anything like it. 
You've just been overdrawn in something that's not part of your normal. And then this paratrooper said to him, yeah, boss, you're right. And his tremors disappeared. It was a way of normalizing this fear. He just, you know, he was used to doing one thing and not another, and he he just couldn't go on. But also, Jolly was a guy who does, I think, what many of the services now do. And he did live tissue exercises on the carrier going down, or however they went from Britain to the Falklands. He showed his folks ER room scenes. And I think he also had, you know, like a animal head, maybe a pig's head or something like that, that they would have to dissect in order to see blood and guts. And so that when they were exposed to detritus, the battlefield and and the the gushing of blood, they, like a doctor, would have some kind of inoculation to that feeling. So he he pre-exposed in order to somehow alleviate post-trauma. He pre-traumatized, you might say, or at least he tried to acclimate. He was quite a remarkable man. I really adored talking with him. I spent a few days with him in Cornwall hearing his stories. One of the other stories was he didn't know what to do with the individuals that served under him. I mean, and we were in the hospital and he, like a good doc, he said, I treat the person who has the most severe wound first. And sometimes they were Argentinians and not British Navy. And he got a, um, a Medal of Honor from Argentina, but also from the Queen. And he asked Queen Elizabeth, do you think I can wear both at the same time? And Queen Elizabeth's answer was, of course. I mean, what a man of honor. <laughs> yeah, I, I really loved that story. And the other thing that that story kind of drew out, which is a theme of both of your books, is that we can't go at it alone. Like there's a big role for community, which is kind of what we've been talking about. And so like, you know, we think resilience, you know, we kind of think this internal thing, but you argue that resilience is about community, right? It's about connecting. It's about being able to ask for help. I'll tell two stories. And one is Seneca has a play called Hercules Rages and Hercules comes back from the underworld and he does a horrible thing. He kills his family because he's been blinded by his mythical stepmother, Juno, and he wants to kill himself. He's suicidal. And his friend says, use your heroic courage to show yourself self-mercy. So it's the friend who's mirroring for him the empathy that he can't find for himself. And his father, too, says, the guilt is not yours. It's Juno's, the stepmother. So This is Hercules, the strongest man alive, mythically at least. (laughs) And he is being told by Seneca, a Stoic, to turn to others except the helping hand in order to heal for the moment. There's one other story about the military that I would love to tell because I think this person for me really embodies a Stoic model. And that's a guy who many probably don't know. My students never heard of him. And it's Hugh Thompson. He was a warrant officer during the Vietnam era. He's a helicopter pilot. And one morning he's flying over an area where there's absolutely no activity at all. It is dead quiet. 
he goes back, refuels, and then hovers over the same area two hours later. He's with two others. Hugh Thompson has two others, Larry Colburn and a guy named Andriotti, who didn't survive the war. And they see hundreds upon hundreds of wreathing bodies in a ditch. And then they see young women, Buddhist monks, and children being marched out of huts. And they cannot figure out what's going on. They have no idea. The area I'm referring to is Milai. And it was the morning in which Lieutenant Callie and Captain Medina were committing one of the most horrific atrocities in war. They had already killed 300 innocent folks. This is the Charlie Company. They hadn't seen action. They had lost a few buddies recently. And they were going to get their revenge. And Hugh Thompson, who I interviewed several times and brought to the Naval Academy into Georgetown to speak, said, you know, he was tearful as he recalled what happened. At that time, it was 30 years later. He said, that's not what we do as Americans. This is what the Nazis do. He finally realized what was happening. And he landed the helicopter. He told his side gunner, Larry Colburn, if the GIs shoot at me, shoot back. That order, highly controversial, made him a haunted and hunted man. But he had his moral compass intact. He got down there with only a a sidearm and he ordered Medina and Callie to stop. They raised their arms, but they didn't shoot, thank God. And his story back to me 30 years later was, I could have done more. I should have done more. But he stopped what would have been the second wave of that massacre, another 300 being killed. He had anger. So I think the Stoics would have allowed it. He had anger, but he disciplined it. He acted on principle, what he knew he had to do. And yet it was anger that kind of fed this absolute heroic act. In my mind, he's a hero, you know, but when I brought him to the Naval Academy, I had this email that went out. I said, we're having, it was a public lecture, massive public lecture. My colleagues, as I said earlier, were many who had served in Vietnam or, and many who were just returning from a place called the Basra Road. They were flying over <laughs> the areas called the Basra Road in what would be the first Gulf War. I said, the hero of Milai will be speaking, you know, Tuesday night at 7 p.m. I got so much hate mail. It was unbelievable because they remembered this order. If the GIs shoot at me, you shoot back. But he eventually, the army finally recognized his merit. I don't think West Point ever invited him to give a talk, but the Naval Academy certainly did. And there was a commemoration ceremony at the Vietnam War. He was given some, a medal of honor, but what a story. That to me is the human face of stoicism, courage integrity, some anger, but totally disciplined and fighting an enemy who, in his case, were wearing the same uniform he had on. You've mentioned a couple of times throughout the the course of this interview, I think you said the words role model or, or model. And so, you know, I know that the Stoics, they often wrote about the importance of having positive examples or, or role models in our life. And one of my favorite essays from Seneca is on the shortness of life. And he talks about 
having, you know, people like basically dead people are studying history to find these role models. And he's got a passage in here. He says that none of these people will be too busy to see you. None of these will not send his visitor away happier and more devoted to himself. None of these will allow anyone to depart empty handed. They are at home to all mortals by night and by day. Meaning that like you could just crack open a book and, and learn from somebody from the past. So we talked about Marcus Aurelius. We talked about Seneca. We've talked about Stockdale. You know, Captain Jolly, you just talked about Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson. So how important are having these, you know, role models in history, or I guess like studying these role models in history for those of us living today? I think it's critical. Um, Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, you know, something to that effect. What you're doing, reading and going back to the ancients or whomever, you know, Rick Jolly, Hugh Thompson aren't so ancient, Stockdale's not so ancient. Totally important because we get very, very nearsighted and we need to be farsighted. Now, we don't look back to history and embrace it all. That's just stupidity. You know, do we want to go back to history and embrace Roman enslavement, Greek enslavement? You got to be joking. Do we want to go back to history and embrace pre-Civil War, the Civil War, Jim Crow era? You got to be joking. No. So not all history and not all the models who have been hailed as role models are flawless. Or if you do history work, ancient philosophy as I teach, it's not that you cherry pick, but you have to read in a way that's enlightened so that you know what aspects are worth emulating and what aspects are not worth emulating. Seneca wasn't through and through a good person. He was totally besotten in many ways by Nero and his wealth. Um, You know, he loved the power of the imperial palace. I'd say lots of people in power you know, love the career. They like all the stars. They like the epaulets. It's not always gorgeous. <laughs> and as a parent, those of us that are parent know we broadcast mixed models a lot of the time. So our job, both as selectors of historical models, be it Socrates, Cato, or Seneca, or, you know, these Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, and of those who are in our midst, whom we might lionize or idealize, we got to also realize the pitfalls of idealization. And I think Seneca says it best. There's no shortage of great examples out there to draw from. And history should be your friend. But he also knows in his own case that he's a mixed bag. You know, he's got flaws, he's got blemishes, and he's a work in progress, you might say. (laughs) And I think even dead models are works in progress. And that's why they're exciting to study. You know, you get to read the full, the full thing. And certainly those who serve know that we all, you know, we have good days and bad days and that we're not fully perfect in whatever role we take on. As we close down this interview, and again, one of the things I loved about your books, to me, it's a different take on stoicism. You push back on a lot of the beliefs that I guess at hardcore Stoics just kind of blindly adopt. Towards the end of the book, you have a chapter called A Healthy Modern Stoicism. And you provide four principles that, you know, could help guide people in their modern lives. I I guess making you a modern Stoic. Would you mind sharing those in the episode or or do people have to buy your book? Very good advertisement. (laughs) Well, they should definitely buy the book. It's totally readable. Right, Joe? 
It is. It is. And I I think I read your book in three or four days. Like it was very quick, you know, even though that you have an academic background. Yeah. The point is to make my scholarship, give it credibility, but to write in the most accessible way. And that's how it's been reviewed is totally accessible. So here's one healthy modern stoic, or I'll give you the four tenets that I, I sort of felt by the end of writing the book that I had been articulating all along. One, psychological mastery can't be at the cost of human vulnerability. You cannot make yourself bulletproof. That's a horrible phrase. We are not bulletproof. Two, reliance on others depends upon building communities of cooperation, respect, and support, however different those individuals are from yourself. Three, denying pain, whether of a body or mind, isn't a permanent solution for grit. And four, monitoring those quick impressions, that's a stoic phrase, includes watching for distortions and bias produced by fear and anger, as well as desire. And we can, you know, include all the subparts of those, you know, a a narrow sense of who belongs and who doesn't belong. So I, by the time I finished writing the book, I figured that's what I was talking about all along. I didn't start with that, but that's what I, what I developed. So I think it's really critical. And it, if there was one key sentence, it's that grit requires the support of those who can sustain us, both in your community, in deployments and in coming home. We just don't make it on our own. That's a great ending to this episode, Dr. Sherman. And I love it because in, I think like 98, 99, when I applied to the Naval Academy and to West Point, I didn't get in because my grades weren't good enough. And so kind of like the jokes on them, like I still benefited from your teaching without risking a GPA in the process. So thank you very much for your time today. For our listeners who were interested in learning more about you, learning more about your books, where can they find you? NancySherman.com. And if you click on the books or specifically Stoic Wisdom, uh, there's a lot on there. So this new book is Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. And there's a lot of articles and podcasts and other stuff at NancySherman.com. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciated it just as much as I appreciated reading your books. Thank you so much, Dr. Sherman. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a real pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud.